Welcome everybody to another episode of my uh, podcast and as you all know I'm always delighted to have my uh, guests on today is no different and today uh, I have uh, Daniel Strode uh, who is I'm just looking over here to your LinkedIn profile uh, cultural innovation evangelist web 3.0 blockchain DeFi NFT strategy but uh, most importantly, uh, Group Director of Culture and Strategies, Global Human Resources at Banco Santander. And, um, for those of listening, I'm holding up his new book, uh, The Culture Advantage, Empowering Your People to Drive Innovation. And I've already started reading it. I haven't um, finished reading it, but I will do uh, so. Thank you to Graham Smith for making the uh, introduction. And today's topic is around, does a sales culture matter? But before we get into that, uh, Dan, who, what, why, when, where, maybe, and then uh, we'll go from uh, we'll go from there. Perfect. Well, thanks for having me first and foremost, and and thanks to Graham also for the introduction. It's been nice um, getting to know you these past few weeks, um, knowing what you do, how you do things, listening to your podcast, and and now I get the chance to be a guest. Um, Probably too many things to go into much detail about. Um, I started my career in consulting originally, so doing local government consulting, national mm-hmm. government consulting, um, on the highways, on local governments, on all sorts of different things. So that was really interesting. And then I moved into banking industry. was never a banker, though. I always think um, it's probably preferable to say you're a policeman rather than a banker. Um, <laughs> So I moved into technology uh, within Santander Bank, uh, then moved into strategy. And then most recently, the last five years of my career, I've spent in Madrid looking at the people's strategy and the culture of the bank, which is something that's fascinated me um, ever since. So been here in Madrid five years, started teaching uh, the topic of culture and innovation at various universities around the world. And as you say, just published a book called The Culture Advantage, which really encapsulates my passion for this topic and also hopefully sells to everyone that culture is important, irrespective of company, irrespective of industry, irrespective of your size. Culture is important and it does lead you to outside benefits and impacts in the working environment. So that's my message today. And and hopefully we can talk at a bit more depth on some of these things. Absolutely. And so before we kind of get into it, what, what's the, the purpose or what outcomes do you hope people get from reading your, your book? Yeah, not, not to do any sales pitch, but um, I would say it's a, it's a very practical book. So it's one that you can read within a weekend or if you're a really eager reader uh, within a day. Mm-hmm. You read it across a weekend, you can pick up hints and tips on what to do to improve or enhance your current culture within your organizations. It doesn't matter if you're a, the owner of a company, the CEO of a company, a team leader, or an individual contributor, there's something for everyone. And the book goes through eight different principles of what I have found in my research to be highly successful companies are doing. They're very consistent in their cultural patterns. You don't have to do all eight of them. Absolutely not. And you can pick and choose what you do want to do. So my aim with the book is just to give everyone basically a menu with real life examples of where this works, how it works and why they work. And then you go and choose from the menu what you want to do in your day to day. Perfect. And I can attest that whilst I haven't read it in the weekend, um, it is uh, an easy read in terms of... um, 
uh, it's easy to digest and it's easy to think about the uh, the examples that Dan uh, gives and how that might translate into your um, uh, into your own world. But before we kind of get into this, the the sales culture piece, and this may take us in different directions. What I enjoyed in terms of the opening aspects of your uh, is your book is the quote around um, the definition of culture being what you do when no one is looking, which for me is a really interesting concept. So can we kind of explore that a, a little bit a little bit further, and then and then we'll probably go down some rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So so I was thinking, of course, I've been thinking about this topic for five years. Um, I always, probably in my early years, I defined culture as the way we do things around here. Mm-hmm. And then latterly, I added this extra part to the phrase, which is when no one is looking. And I think that's really important because I've seen companies and people try to create cultures and force cultures upon one another. And I've seen behaviors arise as a result of that that are perhaps not quite genuine. So they're people forcing the culture, forcing their behaviors in the day-to-day to align to a vision that they want to achieve rather than doing it for what it's meant to do, which is having a genuine intent that underlies it. And, um, you know, I, I watch a lot of TV, for better or for worse, and The Good Place uh, was one TV show that I used to watch. Mm-hmm. I think it's on five series now, but basically the concept there is some people die and they go to what they think is heaven, but actually it's hell. And their only way of escaping the hell is to become good citizens, which they weren't when they were living on on Earth. And what you see as the series progresses is they can only escape the hell, not by doing good things because they think that will get them to heaven, but because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, that, that made me think about how does that relate to culture? And I drew the parallels and came up with when no one's looking. And I really think it's true. You cannot fake culture. You cannot force culture. It has to be genuine because you want to do it. So in in a work context, what might that look like in terms of doing something that when no one's looking? What Are there any examples you can give of what, what behaviour somebody might be exhibiting that kind of fits that descriptor yeah so if if one of your behaviors for example was to think customer think about the customer put them Mm -hmm. at the heart of the decision making you would typically see and if i talk from a banking perspective you would typically see customers treated according to their personal and individual needs Mm -hmm. rather than the needs of the organization which would be short-term sales pressure financial focus and, you know, we've seen this play out at Wells Fargo in recent years. Mm-hmm. They were mis-selling products to customers. They were even selling credit cards and different products to customers that didn't even exist or mm-hmm. had, had passed away. So that was a typical or a very strong case of not living the culture that you wanted. So if you wanted to be customer first, you would really listen and help your customers rather than drive some sort of financial agenda that sits behind that. And I think that's a good example of how that could man- manifest in the day-to-day. So that's a really interesting angle. If I kind of if I put my sales hat on, that that is in almost intention with kind of what a salesperson is driven by. Now we're not selling; you should be mis-selling stuff, and you should be not putting the customer first, of course. But that doing what is right for 
fundamentally the the customer can create tension between what a salesperson has been driven to do by uh, KPIs. And we always know that if you wait to quarter end, you can probably get the better deal because they're under pressure to get to meet their um, uh, their numbers and uh, and so on. So how does a sales leader or even an organization, I guess, because from my my personal experience, a sales function has always been you're just there to do a role, which is sell and make the numbers. And you're I'm going to be bold here and say um, dispensable rather than ind- in- indispensable. Someone else has always another bum on a seat, which we can do just to churn through, uh, churn through the numbers. So how does an organization start to think about, we want to put the client first. We have to answer to shareholders or, or what have you. And how do you manage that, that tension that that's going to then create for what a salesperson has to do on the day-to-day but what you're trying to achieve in, in terms of that, that end goal or vision and how then does that then play into the wider role of the organization, colleagues and employees, et cetera? Yeah. So, so we're going down the rabbit hole now. So let's get into <laughs> Sorry. Two, two things on my mind. So the first is I always say that culture is your sustainable advantage um, okay. and it can help you make your business sustainable. So what I mean by that, and it applies to, to sales in this case, is if you look after the customer, you treat them well, um, you are more likely to have that level of repeat business, relationship over time, good bond with them, strengthen the business, and so on and so forth. And that is, to the extent, a sustainable business, something mm-hmm. that maybe you cannot predict the revenue moving forwards, but you can have a good indication that there's going to be some revenue in the future, as well as today when you sell them the first the first widget. Mm-hmm. So doing things the right way is always a good move. Yeah. Of course, it comes with, as you say, the pressure to your other stakeholders, the pressure to the end of the quarter, the targets that you have to hit. And it's always that fine balance. The second thing, though, and it relates to the fine balance, is I always consider that a company, again, irrespective of industry or size, has four main stakeholder groups. So the first, and it does start with your people, so the people that work there. So in this case, your sales force. The second is the customers. And then the third is your shareholders or stakeholders, however that might be. Mm-hmm. And your fourth uh, stakeholder group is the communities that you operate in. And I like to think of those four groups of people, all interested stakeholders in the business, as a virtuous circle. So as to say, if you strengthen one of those areas, you inherently strengthen the other three. So if I have happier people, then I'm going to have more productive uh, people, people uh, working longer in the company, staying with us longer, increasing their knowledge, so on and so forth. And thus, they will serve the customers better, which makes the customers more loyal, which makes them more profitable, which means we can give extra returns to the shareholders. And hopefully they approve that we can then spend and reinvest in our communities that we operate in. And you can start anywhere on that virtuous circle. So I think the first is culture giving you that sustainable advantage, mm-hmm. thinking about business for the long term. And then the second is it helps everyone when you look at it through this um, virtuous circle lens. I guess the big challenge that companies have to face when they're going through a cultural transformation is to have that long-term mindset. And of course, when we're thinking about sales cultures, that can be very, very 
um, difficult and very aggressive mm -hmm. to change that. So step by step. Indeed. And there's um, in terms of the work that we're doing around uh, employee experience, there's Gallup research that shows that you can you can increase sales by as much as 20 percent. If you have, you know, happy employees, are you happy sales team? Because have it just the, the logic just dictates in terms of in terms of that. And as you were talking, um, the story that you share so eloquently in your book around kind of the journey that Lego Lego Group went on, when there I say it, they kind of lost sight of the customer and the impact that that then had, and then the new CEO came in and kind of flipped it back to we need to get back to the, the the core values of our customers. So do you want to share share that brilliant story for the audience? So I think that's a really neat way to, A, most people can relate to Lego yeah. <laughs> in some shape or form, uh, and B, I just think it's a really nice story to illustrate what can go wrong, but then how you can bring it back. Yeah, definitely. So this, this is one of my most favorite stories and favorite companies. As you say, everyone can, <laughs> or most people can relate to Lego. So... You know, Lego started in the 1930s as a, a wooden manufacturer, a wood manufacturer. They were actually making tables and chairs. The recession hit. The economy um, was, was in trouble, of course, with the wars and everything like that. And they started manufacturing children's toys at that point in time. So their best-selling toy was actually a wooden duck um, that was in the houses of many children in the local area. And Lego, of course, um, spent the next 60 years growing year in, year out, record profits every year, doing great business. And the customer was at the heart of their culture. That was something that was very, very clear. Then the 1990s came along and they went through 10 years of a very tough patch, a decade of, of hard times, perhaps nearly going bankrupt, nearly going out of business because they lost sight of their customer. What happened was they stopped talking to the customers. They stopped consulting with them. They offshored much of their manufacturing to third parties, different locations. And of course, this was, you know, with good intentions. It was all about reducing costs, trying to boost sales, trying to think of new products to push and so on and so forth. But actually, they lost sight of the customer. So the CEO, new CEO came in uh, and said, what shall we do? And he said, well, we need to transform the culture once again to be customer centric to bring us back to what we were in the 1930s when we only thought about quality of product and quality of customer service and care and it's interesting because what he did and what he implemented was he brought back in-house the manufacturing and today 98 percent of lego pieces are manufactured in-house every day as you know lego is quite a cyclical product so it's not like banking where people keep their account for their whole life more mm -hmm. or less Actually, every 12 to 18 months, a Lego product kind of becomes obsolete unless it's, unless it's a bestseller. So they implemented customer focus groups once again. And by the way, they're doing this with children. So if you can do focus groups with children, you can do it with anyone. So they really got to know what does the customer expect? What do they want? They started new partnerships. You've probably seen Lego films, mm -hmm. Lego shoes with Adidas. Um, different franchise opportunities started expanding and, and moving out of their traditional lane. They changed their mindset and they said, we're no longer in the toy manufacturing business. We're in the children's um, playground business. So what happens when a person doesn't buy Lego? Do they go and buy Mega Bloks or Meccano? Probably not. But they probably go and buy a PlayStation or an Xbox. Mm -hmm. So we're competing on a different scale now. So they expanded their market, expanded their mindset refocused on the culture of customer, customer at the center of what they do, 
they now have Lego innovation and hackathons and different things where customers can go online and give their ideas. Many of their best products are customer idea generated. So going back to the customer, and as of today, again, record profits year in, year out, growing every year, doing really great and with happy customers. So it really does point to, in this case, putting customer at the center and having employees really bought into that culture as well, rather than trying to do what they consider to be the best things or manufacturing the way they consider the products they consider. Listen to the customer in this case. It's just such a brilliant story. And I had no idea that Lego started out as a, you know, a, a wood manufacturer uh, back in the, uh, in, the 19, uh, in the 1930s because I grew up within the 1980s and Lego was, uh, was Lego was Lego, um, right? But I think what, what stands out for me uh, there is, A, children are the most unforgiving people on the planet. So if you annoy them, they're going mm-hmm. you know, to um, let, you, uh, uh, let you know about it. And of course, they're going to influence their parents in terms of what they do. And, and don't want but it was more the reframing of or lego reframing kind of who the customer or what the customer does and where they need to be rather than we manufacture toy bricks to the, the playground analogy that you um that you gave which then kind of segues very nicely into you know your your book around the cultural advantage and empowering your people to drive innovations the next piece of you know where lego um innovates and you talk about you know the movies so uh, it was a brilliant move because adults wanted to go and see the lego movie yeah. and the batman movie and uh, and <laughs> and so on um but you know my, my children um love the ar aspects of lego and the the spooky one which we get i don't know what brand of lego uh, it is and i look at some of the technic lego i'm like my goodness you can plug it into a computer and now you know control this and all, all this type of uh this type of thing but that bold ability to truly understand your customer and understand where your customer is going, that for me, I feel, is one of the biggest missing pieces in B2B sales around. We all talk about being client-centric in the market, but very, very few are truly are in terms of that example that you have just given with um, uh, with Lego, which I think is, is, is a brilliant, brilliant one. So if, we th- if I think about where kind of the role of sales and sales and marketing is primarily B2B, we're not innovating. We're not really doing anything different. We're doing the same things that we did 20 years ago and just trying to layer technolo- technology, on, technology on it, forgive me, and think that that's going to uh, solve the problems and we can see in most cases is augmenting the problem making the problem actually worse and annoying the buyers even um uh, even further so if a sales leader is listening to this or a marketing leader is listening to this or whoever is listening to uh, to this where does one start to challenge the the culture the status quo around reframing what are what the 21st century client is of um today and i'll caveat this because i appreciate broad brushstroke between industry size of organization and and, and so on but where, where would you encourage people to start thinking in this space yeah it's, it's really interesting because um you know i'm coming from the hr background and i mm-hmm. always think our recruiters and that means it, recruiters in any industry any company are speaking to candidates every single day they're on the face with their customers and they're understanding 
what do the customers want? What do they need? What are the salary expectations? Do they want to work from home? How's the hybrid workforce you know, now operating? They know everything, but they're so busy doing their day-to-day -day job, being measured by how many phone calls did you make today on the KPIs, mm -hmm. that we never ask them, what have you learned? What's your opinion? And I get the feeling that it's the same in sales, which is you have the B2B sales, they're very focused on the KPIs and their role, and they try to accomplish everything that they need to accomplish according to those metrics. But did we ever ask them, what can we improve? How should we go? What's the customer looking for? And that will make you much more successful. So I would say probably the first thing to do in any company is try to foster this culture of speaking up and raising ideas because your people are very, very powerful. They do have the ideas. They are there with the customers. They are there selling on the front line every day, day in, day out, and they know what to do. But you have to make it safe for them to be able to speak up and raise ideas. Without that safety, you will be doomed to fail. But that would probably be my first, you know, really, really impactful tip that you could do. And the irony is that's a really easy caveat, notwithstanding you need to create the culture of safety to give the people the comfort, possibly even some element of, of training to have those types of conversations. But that's a relatively easy uh, tweak to make, especially in um, the world where it could be an, an AE, for example. So the customer's already a customer. Now they're looking for the upsell on the cross-sell. Or, again, in, in, I'm talking kind of SaaS service world, mm -hmm. customer success teams. And because we now live in the world of conversational intelligence, loads of platforms out there are recording phone calls anyway for training and, mon training and monitoring, monitoring purposes. But from a sales perspective, these uh, conversation and intelligence platforms are designed to help the seller sell more effectively rather than if you then could create an, you know, even just adding one more question to the end of the, the discovery call that then helps to give you that data and insight dependent on the um, uh, on, on the response. We have the ability to, to do this. So why then do we do you believe that we're not doing this, even though we say publicly we're client centric and we put the customer first? The biggest challenge, um, and I've seen this in hundreds of companies. So anyone listening to this who says, oh, we have this challenge, how bad? Don't be worried. You're not unique in this. It is leadership. It does start with your leaders. And, and the truth is, whilst culture is everybody's responsibility, as I say in the book, leaders must lead by example. People are watching what they do and just as much what they don't do. So when you say and you put on the wall that you're customer centric, it doesn't make you customer centric. What makes you actually customer centric is when your chief finance officer says, OK, we're going to miss the targets for this quarter, but we're building something for the future and that's OK. And you have that safety and you have that permission. That's what makes you customer centric. That's what makes you your culture real and tangible. So I think start with leadership every single time. And there's many, many instances of absolutely great leaders out there in the workplace who lead by example, live the values, live the behaviors of a company. And when they do that, the results are absolutely outsized because people observe those behaviors. And by the way, I also say what, rec what gets recognized gets repeated. So when you live those behaviors, people will copy them. And conversely, when you don't live 
a certain culture or certain behaviors, people will copy that as well. So when you shout in a meeting, the people will think it's okay to shout in a meeting and they will copy it. When you show kindness and compassion and empathy, they will mirror and copy that as well. So leadership. Again, when when one's talking about this in, in the round, and I guess you know in in a bubble on a podcast, it it sounds so obvious and it sounds so easy. I'm a big fan of uh, Carol Dweck and mindset theory, you know, fixed mindset and a growth mindset. She shares similar examples when you've got leaders with a fixed mindset, <laughs> the outcome Enron, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that that can uh, that can uh, lead to, which ironically was the outcome of the sales culture that had been created and how commission checks were being paid before things even contracts were signed and being um being booked i mean this is this is hard right because it's it's people i used to be in recruitment in a former uh, in a former life and i always say selling people is the hardest thing i've ever done because you never know what they're going to do um what they're going to do do next and it 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 comes full circle back to in my mind and just looking the narrative out in terms of the AE SDR kind of complex, the BDR, there are too many salespeople in the, in the process. KPIs are driving the wrong uh, behaviors. And as Marcus Kalki, who's a, a brilliant leader in this, uh, this field talks about that we should be incentivizing our sellers to reward them handsomely on a year three contract renewal, not trying to get ink on paper because you're actually then going to focus on keeping your customer and making your customer happy and growing with them rather than I'm just trying to sell this in any any way I um uh, I can. And I think it's also interesting that you kind of bring the CFO into this uh into this conversation around we recognize that we're going to miss our numbers this quarter, but we can see the longer term vision as to where we are um where we're going, which then if I come back to the question around does a sales culture matter? It's actually take away the word sales and it's does a culture matter because it is all interlinked. And I don't know why my mind has gone here, but I'm thinking of the way that an ant colony works Mm because everybody knows what their role is, irrespective of hierarchy, because we're all going towards one one end uh, end goal which then reminds me of the and i paraphrase the uh the chap that was asked uh what he, he was like a cleaner or he swept the floors um on one of the apollo missions and he was asked what do you do here and his response was i'm helping put people on the moon because that's how he saw his purpose towards the end goal he didn't see himself as someone that tidied up the uh tidy up the the office I think I know what the answer is going to be, but how how does how do leaders then start to engender that type of understanding of how somebody fits into that overarching vision purpose that without you know purpose in terms of seeing of 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 getting there? Follow up question, picking up on your point around your people are your most powerful uh, assets. How do you then empower them to socialize that out into the to the market so that it's not just leadership talking it, the business is actually acting it? Yeah. So I think um, if, if we're talking about um, aviation examples, mm-hmm. 
something that comes to my mind is Southwest Airlines in the US. So, you know, they set the trend of turning around their planes within 10 minutes, which made them much more profitable and efficient. And the reality is, when I think about it, I would not like to clean a plane, neither would I like to carry or throw heavy luggage from outside the plane, inside the plane, and vice versa, especially not when I only have 10 minutes to do it. Mm -hmm. So they created this culture of fun at work, fun in the workplace. And now you have people who are really happy and engaged, having fun, moving heavy bags from one place to another and doing it with such efficiency that it's scary. And they did that because of the culture. And the reality is you can't beat or you can't compete with people who are having fun at work. So I think when I think about the sales culture, having fun at work is very, very important. The second thing is we always talk about the KPIs and we say, how do you con compare and contrast that? And is there the tension with the culture? Well, there is research from Latham and Locke, which they did in 1991, and it stands true 30 years later, which is the more difficult goals you set people, the higher and the harder goals, they called it, the better the, res the results are. So they found that the more difficult the goals were, consistently leads to higher performance. And I think in terms of aviation, again, the interesting one here is probably SpaceX, the rocket company, the rocket manufacturer. Yeah. You know, they set themselves a very hard goal, which is to make um, humans a multi-planetary species. There's many constraints in this. The first is a financial constraint. You know, they're not working with an unlimited budget. And then the second constraint is Elon Musk himself, because he wants to do this during his lifetime. So there's a speed there that needs to happen, you know. So that's probably, you know, a very high and a hard goal, probably one which I think they'll achieve in the coming years. At least they've managed to put the Falcon 9 up into the sky faster than I could have imagined. So yeah. they're going in the right stage. So I think, you know, the higher the goals, the higher the performance. When you think about the sales culture, KPIs don't have to come at the you know, the negative aspect of having your culture impacted negatively, it can contribute when you think of it in that way. And the second thing is when you create those environments which are fun, you probably have better outcomes as well. And again, reflecting on the word fun, it's just a, it's just, it's just a human, uh, it's just human, right? And if I reflect on the times that uh, you've had that cohesiveness, you've had fun times, um, within within the team and the kind of the, the camaraderie that that, uh, that that creates, and then the we're all kind of working towards this to um, together. So the flip side on on that then is how do you do that in a in a hybrid world? And I'm reflecting on you know a mental health conversation talk we had. Uh, yesterday about you know keeping an eye out on your colleagues and if you notice they're not putting their screens on if you notice they're not coming into the to the office as often if at all because it's kind of really hard to do that if we are disconnected because humans crave um in my view uh tactile we need to be you know pack animals we need to be together back to the kind of the, the, the cave person uh the cave person day so how, how do how do leadership start to try and build this in a very, very different world, I guess, to where we were um, pushing three years ago. I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. The world has changed completely in the last three years. Um, I do think that hybrid works. 
I am a very big believer that we do need the office or we need regular meetings with our colleagues. We need to do those team building activities. We need to create those relationships, you know, have those deep bonds with one another to really get to know what makes each other tick and so on and so forth. This is absolutely essential. So I don't ever see a place where there's no need to meet your colleagues and you can be fully remote and, and you know, never have that face-to-face interaction. So for me, hybrid works and we need to keep promoting face-to-face interactions, critical. In terms of what can leaders do or team leaders, managers do, I'm a very big fan of setting what I call routines and rituals in place. And actually, routines and rituals are one element of how you change a culture. Um, you know, we look back to the 1980s where the first research about culture was was happening um, from people like Jerry Francis, for example, uh, Jerry Johnson, sorry. Um, you know, Jerry Johnson set out that routines and rituals were one sixth of, of the most important things to change when it comes to culture. And some of the things I like to say here are leaders should have a specific routine of one to one check ins with their employees. They should have a specific routine of doing performance evaluations and reviews, checking the metrics. Then they should have rituals, which are like one off things where they have the team get together in an on-site meeting or an off-site meeting to go and eat pizza together, whatever that might be. So if you set up enough of these touch points, either as a routine or a ritual, I think you'll be able to connect with your people much better than just not having these in place and trying to figure out, ah, this one has the camera off. Does that mean anything? Do I need Mm -hmm. to pay attention? So you do need to work on this. And it's, not probably something that comes as second nature to most people. We haven't lived in this hybrid world before for the majority of staff, especially in the sales environment. Much of that has been in person, working in teams, being part of the pack, being together, and it's different. So we do need to give people the time to learn these skills. We do need to train the managers and the employees on how to work in a hybrid environment. And we need to make an effort because it is difficult. But Um, with good planning I think good routines and rituals can be put in place and do it consistently and uh, we'll all improve as we go along this journey. Uh, Picking up on that that word effort is also it's a two it's a two-way street right between both you know manager and um, uh, manager or line report this has to be a two-way street but then that comes down to communication and etc but you put in the framework that you just described that all should start to kind of manifest itself, um, uh, manifest itself naturally. Final question, and I never give any of my audience kind of um, uh, the heads up that I'm going to ask this one. It's not a scary one, um, but I want the knee-jerk reaction. Not the knee-jerk reaction, but I want the 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 initial kind of thought is, is the world of the metaverse and all of this fun stuff. Where, where do you believe that the metaverse is going to take business and I guess more more importantly from a a culture perspective because I have I'm playing around with it I've had meetings in um in workrooms I think it's it's amazing I can absolutely see its place you see this huge debate on uh, online about what it is it is isn't where it's placed in people putting up look at look at the newspaper cutting from i think where it was in the early 90s about the internet being a complete waste of time yeah, yeah. clips from tomorrow's world about what a computer may or may not um be but from what you're seeing in your personal capacity as uh, as the research you've been doing but also from what 
uh, your organization is seeing and thinking? Where, where do you where do you think we'll be in five, 10 years time with our friend, the metaverse? <laughs> I think, um, well, now this is scary because I'm going to put into something recorded for the first time ever my views on this topic. (laughs) When I've spoken to students or other companies, you know, no one can prove what I've said. (laughs) But I would say five to 10 years time, yes, I think there'll be a metaverse. Um, What we need to decide now is what is the metaverse? What does Mm -hmm. it look like? At the moment, each company or many companies are building their own metaverses. Yeah. which is actually completely against the idea of a metaverse because why should Facebook or Meta have a monopoly on the metaverse and everyone needs to go there? Yeah. We need open platforms. So I think metaverse, we're probably further away from having something truly usable mm-hmm. uh, than, than what most people think. But in 10 years, I think we'll be there and it will be wonderful and, and it will be you know fully interactive and people can get together and and have the meetings, have the conversations, see each other, see what the other people are seeing. And it's going to be wonderful, but a bit longer in the future. I think in the more short term or the near term future, the most interesting thing for companies, and especially for sales, by the way, I think are non-fungible tokens, this concept of NFTs. Mm -hmm. I think these deployed well and considerately between now and the next three years are going to be very, very important for businesses. At its core, if I have to explain the concept of an NFT, I could say, um, you know, you, you have the underlying technology, which is the blockchain that sits underneath it. You know this, but, but maybe I give a brief, a brief introduction. Basically, this could be considered as a immutable network that proves what happens on that network. So if I own one NFT, I am the sole custodian of that. Mm-hmm. Nobody can can say that actually somebody else owns that asset. It's absolutely in my name. It's proven in a distributed ledger. And that's a fact. And I think this is a real opportunity for businesses and for sales because by distributing NFTs, and by the way, we've seen some companies doing this. So Pepsi have done some NFT drops. Christie's have been involved in Mm -hmm. NFT auctions and, you know, there's a lot going on in the space. Companies will be able to know their customers better than ever before because they will have immutable digital on-chain records of their customers and their actions. And they will be able to engage and reward their customers like never before. So, for example, if I give you an NFT today and you're holding that in your profile in your wallet, I can go and check and I can say, ah, look, Alex also is holding um, these 10 NFTs or has bought products from these shops and has these digital receipts in his wallet. So I know this customer profile or I know his interests. And because I have that existing relationship with you, I can say, okay, in the future, I'm going to give you something or promote you a product or market you something using another NFT or another way of, of communication. So I think it's, it's really interesting that we're going to start living perhaps lives a bit more publicly than ever before. And your wallets and, and your transactions that happen on the blockchain, because they're going to be public, are going to be carefully curated in some senses um, to your likes and interests and needs as a customer. And companies are going to be able to use that data to help you as a customer. There's nothing more frustrating than being served a Google ad yeah. for some some jeans that I already bought last week. <laughs> but at least in this way, we will know that you've bought the jeans and we'll be able to target you in, in a much more effective way. So I'm really, really big on 
the next five years, NFTs uh, and digital products and digital distribution, getting to know your customers. And then five years later, the metaverse, I would say. That is the one of, I think, the first time that someone's actually managed to explain this concept to me in a way that my tiny mind um, now understands. And it's interesting because Starbucks have, re- have launched their loyalty yeah. program and their marketing didn't mention NFT, didn't mention crypto, didn't mention anything. It's just this is the new way we are going to engage with our um, our community. And now hearing you articulate it in that um, way that a simpleton like me can understand that makes sense. My brain is now going a million miles an hour in terms of how might that translate into, into kind of our world of professional services or, um, uh, or more broadly. And kind of Gary V, there's, you know, V Friends he launched and everyone's like, oh, what the hell's V Friends? And only yesterday he's launched V Friends with Mattel. So now you can buy physical toys with Mattel, mm-hmm. but I assume that that toy, which you hold, the contract is the nf it's still the nft which then creates that community so um thank you (laughs) well it's it's interesting because i think i didn't do a good job at all because (laughs) i was completely unprepared as you say um but two let me give two really quick examples of other use cases that i can consider coming right now in the pipeline so the first would be um if you owned uh, or if you had an NFT, which was membership to your golf club mm-hmm. or membership to a restaurant at the moment, the current model is you have a one to one relationship with the restaurant or the golf club. You pay a thousand pounds a year for your golf membership. When you don't want it anymore, you stop paying. And that's the end of the story. But now if you own an NFT and have a digital asset, you can transfer that to who you consider. So you could transfer it to me. And maybe there's a long waiting list for the golf club or the restaurant and you could sell it to me for £2,000. And by the way, you can code into these contracts royalties for the business. Mm -hmm. So if you sell it to me, actually, you don't receive the 2000 but say you receive 90% and the golf club gets a 10% royalty. But the golf club actually makes more money because there's a secondary marketplace and you make money because you had the foresight to buy something and use something ahead of time before it was popular. And because you made a good decision, you're now being rewarded, whereas previously you wouldn't have been rewarded. So that's that's one interesting use case. Mm-hmm. And then the second, I think, is we're going to go much bigger on um, digital ownership. And I think there's opportunities for business to digitalize their value. And I can see a time where instead of these horrible house contracts and house deeds and having to keep pieces of paper, you would just put that on the blockchain. When you sell the house, you transfer the digital asset online as well or on chain and you would do away with, you know, swathes of paper overnight. So that also has, you know, applications when it comes to receipts and those kind of things. Imagine that Starbucks, every time you go there, they send you a receipt, which is actually on the blockchain. It's an NFT. And what, what they did was they partnered with a local artist in the community to do some art for that receipt and say that, you know, a thousand customers every day get this receipt with the special art. Imagine that they find the next Picasso in 10 years time, you're holding that thing. You can go and sell that. And that's an asset that you can sell. So you're happy as a customer as well. So the the possibilities are infinite. Um, I need to prepare better better case studies and examples. No, I, 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 I hope it gives a flavor. It does. And I, I, I forgive me for kind of putting you on the 
um, on the spot because I, I, my sense is the not the emotional reaction, but the, the, the instant thought versus a necessarily very well crafted mm. kind of prepared thought, in my view, is actually better because it comes from the heart, um, yeah. as it were. Not saying that it wouldn't ever come from the heart if it was um, is prepared, but that's already made me just think very, very differently. Uh, about all this and I've got some ideas which um, I'm going to noodle on and probably probably follow up with you in terms of uh, uh, between us but I'm conscious of um, time because you've got to go and plant some trees uh, I believe in a uh, in a minute which is a very good thing to be uh, doing so uh, Dan where can um, where can people find you that are listening because those that are listening Dan's got lovely background with his book and all that kind of stuff but where can people find you if they want to learn more about um you how you might be able to help i don't know if you do help mm-hmm. organize other organizations um in this i don't want to put you on the spot but where can i point people to no no if, if people want to connect with me on linkedin um i'm dan strode on linkedin um you'll find me there that's my favorite social media as it were um but if you want to go and navigate to my website which is danielstrode.com uh you can also sign up to to my blog there have a look at some of the things i'm working on and get in touch with me on email on the website so happy always to uh, receive queries or inquiries from curious minds about culture as i say it's a topic that i'm driven by the topic that i love so anything i can learn from your listeners and anything i can give back the more the merrier fantastic i'll put the links down um here i'm slowly getting this right after 100 plus episodes of where to where to, uh, to point and the links of course will be uh, in the body copy of the text as uh, as well but dan thank you so much for today i really appreciate your time and insight go and get the book it's a it's a great read i'm, I'm halfway through it at the moment highly recommend it but dan uh, thank you thank you very much have a good rest of the day will do and to my listeners thank you as always for tuning in i uh, really appreciate it if you want to be on the podcast you know what to do if you want to recommend people to be on the podcast like graham did thank you recommending dan you know what to do but uh for today that is it as ever i'll see you next week on next week's topic which i don't know what that is because i'm that disorganized but it's been uh, great to have you here today as uh, uh, as ever thanks all <laughs>